This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Futurati podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. There has been a tremendous amount of chatter over the past year about NFTs, how they're a scam, how they'll usher in a new era of democratized Web3 for the entire planet, and everything in between. Tonight, we're joined by someone with an unusual background who is unusually well-placed to help us get to the bottom of this. Michael Mazels is a former professor of art history who made the somewhat non-traditional pivot into crypto. He is now the head of research at Abra, where he works on subjects like Bitcoin mining and climate change and the security vulnerabilities of blockchain bridges. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Michael, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the project you're working on today. Uh, for sure. So the long story of me, uh, quickly, uh, wanted to be an artist, uh, wasn't a very good artist, uh, realized I was uh, much more interested in some ways in uh, history, and uh, wound up doing a PhD in uh, modern contemporary art history, appropriately enough, at the University of Virginia. Uh, wanted to be either a museum curator or an art history professor. Uh, did each of those things for about three years and recognized that I had come up against the limits of what an academic career was going to uh, make possible. Um, So one semester before I was uh, basically going to get a semi-guaranteed tenure at the University of Arkansas, I decided to leave a forever job and do an accelerated MBA program at MIT. It's a very interesting, like one year kind of career change MBA. out of that, uh, I got a job uh, working at a kind of corporate innovation studio in uh, San Francisco, uh, and am now the head of research for Abra, which is a global uh, cryptocurrency exchange headquartered in Mountain View, though I still reside outside of Boston. Um, because while we are uh, talking about personal origin stories, um, part of how I came uh, to this crux in my career was that I uh, sort of got invited to join as a, as a semi-permanent affiliate at a think tank at Harvard called the Metal Lab. Uh, joining a think tank, as you may or may not know, is not always a paid position, uh, right. but it is an interesting one. So uh, the head of the lab uh, basically said, you can stick around here doing whatever you want with us forever if you can just go get any other job anywhere that isn't back in Arkansas. Uh, Okay, that's kind of interesting. Uh, so out of that, kind of back calculated what was the most interesting applied industry complement to being at a creative technology design studio think tank at Harvard. And as a cultural historian thinking about the future intersection of technology, markets, et cetera, I started to watch crypto and I started to think about NFTs and the ways that they, uh, I don't want to say we're transforming the art world, but we're making the jokes literal. 
there was something about how um, there is a kind of humor that's rooted in stating the obvious. And it seemed as though many of the NFT projects that, you know, managed to capture significant attention, your board ape is probably the clearest example of this, but there are others, uh, were taking things like the idea that art, it wasn't really about art, it was about being an insider club, and made it a literal explicit piece of the roadmap, right? You know, oh, Picasso, maybe isn't interesting, uh, Da Vinci is or isn't interesting, Warhol is or isn't interesting, but, you know, we're doing a collector's dinner. That was always the point. Now here it's the explicit point. And there was something about that that was um, compelling, right? And I, there's a, a, a strong line in my discipline of origin that would see that as cynical. And to me, I think that may be true, but I think many of the best avant-garde have been cynical or been cynical in moments or been cynical and then gleeful in the destruction of what it was they were lighting on fire. And that it seems to me there's a lot of bad faith in a discipline that will say yes to Andy Warhol uh, in favor of new identities, new ways of making meeting, new audiences, new technologies, new, uh, you know, like even subject positions with his relationship with Basquiat, call it, right? First African-American canonical artist comes in the art world because Warhol. Okay, fine. Okay, yes, we like all that, but we don't like NFTs because what? No reason at all. Yeah. So, right? So, uh, exactly. No non-circle uh, squaring reason at all, right? Reason, certainly, but no justifiable reasons, in my opinion, in light of the Warhol skepticism. Um, so, you know, decided, fuck it, let's join the pirate party and see how this goes. So uh, that was sort of what led me to the doorstep of Abra. I am now uh, heading up a major research initiative, which will culminate uh, in a journal that's currently called The Pulse, uh, but I'm considering retitling. Trent, love to talk to you about this offline. Um, sure. But it will be a uh, four times a year. I don't want to call it a scholarly journal because we're not yet doing formal peer review. That's something I would like to explore doing in the future. Um, but a uh, journal that takes the rigor and seriousness of academic research uh, to bear in mind uh, communication that would be industry useful. That's a very clumsy way of saying heavy footnotes, research-driven, academic and high-level industry practitioners, uh, pointing towards directions for new areas of exploration as yet still a little light on fundamental research, but again, things we're gonna grow towards in the future, um, to serve as a clearinghouse, right? Because I think that for me, cryptocurrencies are interesting because they're the units of a new internet and that the internet that everyone is familiar with is the internet of data. So we can sit here and share video data and audio data and location data and social media browsing history data and all the fucking data we want until we're blue in the face for free for all intents and purposes, you know, paid advertising, whatever. That's the internet of data. Now imagine cryptocurrencies are the atomic unit rather than of sharing data of sending value. Right? right. So that's right. non-local cash transfer, non-local ownership transfer. Right. The internet so of money. then the Internet of money. Right. What's the Google Maps of money or the Wikipedia of ownership? 
or, you know, like the Spotify of SEC disclosure. Right? You could be fucking anything <laughs> in a way that it's really hard to imagine. I'm sort of inspired by uh, futurist Alvin Toffler, who would try to make some of these like transitions between one idiom and another. And to me, the closest thing I could think of as an analogy would be imagine trying to describe Uber to somebody in 1980 and being forced to the dumb recourse of its taxis over the telephone. Right. That's as much clarity as we could possibly have about what it is we're trying to build. But that, to me, is the direction in which it's all built, right? And what field of human endeavor is not subject to some degree of disruption around new ways of paying and new ways of owning? I would argue very little. So yep. I had always been something of a of an academic polymath. I thought it was like fun to go collect uh, co-authorships from like the geography department and the tax law history department and the department <laughs> of Peruvian study. I just you name it. It was like a fun game to see how far I could kind of cast the die. And it turned out to be a weird uh, background preparatory training for trying to produce significant academic coverage in discipline X. So we're going to try, you know, issue one coming together, uh, issue two planned, issue three, big old question mark. So it sounds like you view NFTs as being an important new innovation in art, not just in terms of content, but in terms of the medium itself. So I want to explore that relationship uh, in as much depth as you want to go to. But I thought we could start with a foundational question, hopefully a nice, easy one. In your view, what what is art? Oh, this is so easy. So uh, <laughs> folks come uh, to an idea that art is a thing. It's a universal. Like, what is art, right? Art is universal. Art is for everyone. And this is a, um, I want to call it a, a, a cultural attitude that is, I don't want to say caused by museums, but it's common in museums, right? It's often where a public has an encounter with art. Museums ought to be free, art is for everybody, art is universal, art is timeless. This is like a, a rhetoric I can kind of gesture towards. And I would say that that rhetoric does a lot to misunderstand what art actually is. And I think that to use, an, again, an analogy from another field, I would often tell my students that stories maybe our universe, right? It would be hard to point at a culture that didn't by one meter or another tell stories, but novels are very culturally specific. They arise in Britain somewhere between the 17th and the 19th century, and they have all kinds of specific relationships to the printing press, public education, a bourgeoisie with a day job at a weekend who wants to take a book with them onto the beach. All those, th all those things always hang together around novels. Art is more like novels than it is like stories. It's a specific construct that in some ways comes, version 1.0 comes into existence in the Renaissance. We can double click on any of this. I could talk about any of these topics just for 90 minutes, just alone. So just know that. And I won't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Renaissance and then modernism, right? Picasso era, that's when the modern art market, it's when the secondary market is born, right? The, one of the differences you can think about between uh, something in a uh, Michelangelo day, a Ninja Turtle day, as I was fond of calling it, and a Picasso day, is it's the difference between patronage and collecting, right? You only patronize the people that live in your castle, but you can collect the work of anybody who might have even come before you. It's a secondary market for it, right? right? Again, you can kind of see these things kind of tracking along. So I think art is this bounded construct, right? It's like religion 
religion a religion. And I didn't make this up. This is like Hegel and Kant talking about this. And they're right because everybody listened to them afterwards, which made them right. You know, they didn't <laughs> discover this like, you know, a golden ratio. It's a concept. It's like uh, this is how Kant described it. Like the beautiful was the uh, purposive purposelessness. So it's like I'm looking in my garden and you can look at a flower and you can look at what makes the rose beautiful is it's so intricate for no reason that seems functional, right? It turns out, well, yeah, it's like a biology. Kant looking at this through, you know, probably not very good, or, you know, 18th century spectacles, it sees something that seems extraneously aesthetic. That's what he means by art, right? And then Hegel kind of comes in and points out that this worshiping of this purposelessness, this purposeful purposelessness has taken the place of religion in modern society, right? It's a thing to stand in front of and go, holy fuck, I'm in awe of how blah this is, right? Instead of religion, it's art. It's filling the same need. So this thing that ought to be free bounded and exist and floatable and collectible, but be the same job that God used to do for you. That's what art is. And it gets invented in the middle 18th century, just like novels. Do. And then how, how does crypto play into that NFTs, this next iteration? So the story starts there, but the story doesn't stop there. Right. So, you know, the heart of the reason that you you're not the only person to ask me for the definition of art, right? And there's a certain kind of like, okay, this makes sense as a beginning place, in part because artists were so fond of asking that question for so long, right? And in some ways, every chapter you see divided in an art history textbook is a different kind of answer to that question, right? Like art is about feelings. Okay, sure, maybe that's like mannerism or something. It's also in some ways surrealism. It's also, you know, in some ways things can, from the 1970s that happened after that, right? Art is about... Uh, supra realism it's about pictures of the world that are more accurate than photographs can ever possibly be because there's human agency to construct something that's realer than real okay right. that's it's another selective. answer it's, it's a selective yeah, process yeah, yeah. right yeah, somebody's got a new it's the same like i got a new idea for a like organic soda company right like we're gonna do sarsaparilla and rosemary this is why this is the best flavor combo right it's that's the game Bring a new product to market, convince the audience that that's where the, the world needs to head, build consensus around that, hopefully find a way to monetize it, hopefully find a way to not die broke. That game's been going on probably since ideas have been going on, right? And it's the same rhythm that drives forward the art world. It's part of what brought screen printing. That's Warhol, again, kind of refusing the singular, heroic, painterly mark-making from Pollock. It's what brings that to the foreground, right? It's what brings feminist art to the foreground. It's what brings graffiti to the foreground, right? There's all kinds of, you know, uh, I'll allude to problematic slippages that happen along the way there and the kind of very, very broad brush stories that I'm telling. But to me, NFTs is screen prints or engravings. It's like a way of having the art exist in multiple or, you know, it turns out in singular, right? Because again, I'm not, you know, far from the first person to point this out. The NFT is a is a signature of ownership, right? So to me, like one of my favorite artists is an artist named Robert Barry, who was kind of prominent in the uh, early 1970s. And one of his, I think, most genius pieces, and just the most genius piece, just in general, uh, he would drive out to the desert and with tanks of inert noble gases, right? Like helium or neon and release them for a second. And that released gas, which was documented in a photograph, again, that's absurd because it's a photograph of an empty air, right? Is a sculpture, but it's like a sculpture that's the least possible. It's like an asymptotic sculpture. It's comes into existence and then isn't anymore. Like it's the invisible. Null set. 
the null set. Yeah. For, uh... yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a random walk over the null set almost. It's invisible, weightless, undetectable, impermanent. Like, what is that? Right. It's it's religion. Oh my God! It's God, the absence, and the soul, and you can see kissing the threshold of mortality. You know, right, birth and death, right through there. Cool. That's pretty sick, bro. But like, what does it mean to own that? I don't know, but it's pretty weird. I'm sure, right? It, 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 I don't think to date it's been weird enough, and I think NFTs have a way of a promise. I'll call it rather than a way of like queering ownership. In the way Warhol queered, uh, you know, mark making, let's call it. Making it diverse and bizarre and organized in all kinds of ways that would have been impermissible under the previously overly strict Victorian regime. Thomas, I, yeah, I, I have a follow up, <laughs> but I, I wanted to see if, if you wanted to jump in. Yeah, let me, um, let me ask this. There's, I've, often heard the the three o's of uh nfts which is uh proof of originality proof of ownership and um uh, uh oh no i forget the third one here <laughs> um and i was, was going to ask you if that is a good way of describing it i think so i mean i guess like an NFT is like a deed, but it's like a deed that can be made liquid and fungible in any of the ways that digital files can be made liquid and fungible, right? So I think, uh, to me, the, the power of the NFT as a generalized system was made the most clear uh, by, there's a great podcast with uh, Raul Paul and Punk6529, and he mm -hmm. says something about the um, the the rhetoric around these conversations is occluded by the fact that so much of this is tied up in the language of smart contracts and all of these assets like living on chain. But it turns out that NFTs can secure the rights to own anything on or off chain. And his analogy was, think about the system of deeds, like writing down who owns what parcel of land and giving people a certificate and also keeping a copy and uh, oh God, a trusted repository, right? And comparing right, right. A against B. That system has been working well since it was possible to own land in any sense of the meaning of that word, right? And land is ultimately off-chain for deeds, and yet the deed system works. So now imagine a registry where you can own facets of something, right? And I think part of my attraction to this space is I uh, became friends with a couple of like ex-bankers when I was doing my MBA, and we would talk about the different kinds of just exotic financial instruments that they would work with, you know, tranches and derivative securities and all these different yeah. kinds of things. I was totally foreign and strange to me. And I thought, like, this is the kind of thing that artists do in a certain way. They take bits of the world and remix them until they find what they think the greatest novelty and value mixture is that nobody's quite thought of the recipe they thought of. And I was very interested to see how new expressive possibilities, which are clearly coming into the world with all of these different kinds of tools uh, for art making, synthetic media, you know, uh, Trent, that was the kind of thing I was alluding to uh, before the call about Generation Beta. Um, there's a lot of new ways of making whatever art turns out to be, oh, there's God, oh, it isn't. But like, what are the boundaries around that? Anything, right? Um, and I think that as art wants to push itself into ever more ambitious 
self-formations, creating a financial corollary to that in which the form can match the genre um, is good. And I'm interested in that as a design problem, how things can be both creatively and financially interesting as, as facets of one another. So just to, to clarify, the three O's are the proof of origin, the proof of originality, and the proof of ownership. Um, sure. I think that's like a way of uh, how I, so the, the analogy that I would use there is it's a fine way of breaking down the primary colors of painting, you know, like, okay, there's red, there's green, there's blue. They can be mixed together in these different combinations and produce these kinds of things. But then like, how do you describe what the boundaries of painting are? You know, to me, I feel like it's better to gesture at what it's trying to accomplish. It's trying to make you feel a certain way. It's trying to make you connect with an artist across space and time. It's trying to put an unexpressible feeling into an associational image. You know, like I, that, that can definitely be understood at the level of uh, what colors are the paint and what is the paint made out of chemically. But I think it's uh, more uh, like in more dimension is better understood as what it's supposed to be a painting of or about or why it came into being. So I think the, the ownership origin uh, originality piece is, is useful, but I think it's missing the forest for the trees, at least from my way of looking at the world. Yeah, a, f a friend of mine is working in uh, the real estate world and trying to create NFTs for houses, only mm. these are dynamic NFTs that uh, end up being a compendium of all of the things that happened to the house. When did the roof get mm -hmm. changed last time? When did they change the hot water heater? And each of these... That's a good idea. Uh, is, each, that, is that Grobecker? Is that Teresa Grobecker? Yes, yes. Yeah, we, and, we interviewed her back in episode 68, I think. Yeah, so um, I've, I found that to be very interesting. And, and the, the plan is, is once you have... An, an NFT with that compendium of all the information about a house, then you don't have to have inspections done. You don't have to have all these extra delays in buying mm -hmm. and selling real estate. And so then theoretically you can close uh, almost instantly on a, a new property. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I was bringing up the part I wanted to, to know about uh, if the house smelled like cat pee or not. And that's a really hard thing to incorporate into a, <laughs> into an yeah. NFT. Or so. like, yeah, what is the feng shui like? You know, like that right. that kind of a thing. And I think <laughs> that, that that's almost sort of what the Robert Berry piece is maybe more accurately about. It's like, what is that little bit of extra that makes something art or that adheres in the thing that is art and doesn't seem to in the thing that isn't? You know, and like, surely some of that has to be subjective, right? Things that appear extra... You know, whether it's like extra bad, what does it smell like? What is the feng shui like? It's because feng shui is going to feel slightly different to different people. And I think that's part of, uh, you know, art is universal, right? It looks different to everybody. Sure. Okay. I'll buy that. Um, but I think that uh, when thinking about spaces that are as potentially massive to disrupt as ownership, it can be tried, helpful to try to land back on specifics around that. But I feel like, again, that diminishes your chance to understand how bizarre all of this could come to be if anything like 30% of the maximalist vision of it comes true. Why don't you sketch that maximalist vision for us just a little bit? Oh, God. I will just tell your uh, 
readers to to see two different things to, to read two different interrelated things a book called radical markets by glenn weill which came out maybe in 2017 and then a paper that weill just published with uh himself one of the researchers name i'm forgetting and i feel badly about that and uh vitalik buterin right so the hypothesis of radical markets do you uh readers uh yourselves uh familiar with the ideas of henry george is that a name that is going to ring George's the economic in? doorbell yes yeah, George, yeah. so basically it's like techno georgism where uh central assets like land are owned by something like a government, but maybe it's the Dow as a collective, but it's, it's some thing. And any use of them, such as building a house on top of it, is a permissioned use that is paid for as a rent rather than as like, you know, something that you ever yourself get to own outright. You never get to own outright uh, the land. You might own the, the lumber that you use to build the house on top of it, but you don't own the property in the American sense of the word, right? This is in some ways what the, the Chinese version of communism looks like. <clears throat> Weil has some very far-reaching ideas about how the Uber, Airbnb-looking sharing economy has been a dress rehearsal for doing this, is proof of concept, is an inadvertent searching by the population for wanting to do this the whole time, right? And proposes in some uh, ambitiously granular detail what it would look like to live in a version of techno georgism where instead of owning your car you have a uh an, an app that gives you a car share or maybe more than one app because maybe there's more than one competing government regime to control things and maybe that's better or worse or i don't even know right okay with that gloss that author just published a paper with Buterin about this new concept of soul-bound tokens, which is just as scary as it sounds like. What <laughs> these are supposed to be are non-transferable tokens. You cannot transfer them after you've been given them that will do things like replace your degrees. So, you know, I went to some fancy school and I paid to go there partly to go. I could tell people I went there, right? This accomplishes the same kind of thing where you're given a token that can be a part of your wallet, can be a part of your like Web3 LinkedIn, whatever that looks like it means. It's your proof of attendance of, you know, at some developer conference, at some school, at some anything, right? You can also do this, as they point out, for all kinds of less serious reasons that almost demonstrate the reaches of this thing as tentacles, right? You could give these out for people who went to go to every home game by the Red Sox. You can also do kinds of interesting things where the token itself may not be tradable, but maybe it generates a very small cash flow that can be traded, right? It's like some kind of mint burn token thing, and you, you can literally enrich yourself by holding the thing, and maybe the token you generate, that itself you know, can be sold in the open market. Okay, fine. That's like another way of approaching that. But to think about what the foundation of techno-Georgism, where it's your life, except you open you know, your 3D, uh, Web3, multi-identity passport thing, and you access theoretically anything, right? Everything, right? Where does your kid go to school? Where do you get car insurance from? Who do you pay taxes to? Who do you call when the sewer exploded, right? All of those things are ostensibly being made to made interoperate, but you can't own anything anymore. You got to rent it from everybody. Everybody rents it from each other. Okay, sure. 
that system for sure is going to work smoothly and not disrupt the daily function of human lives and government services in a way its maximalists seem ready to hold themselves accountable for doing. Yeah, in the past, we've worked on a project called the Whole Earth Genealogy Project, and uh, we, we thought it'd be really interesting if each person had this uh, kind of a cell that uh, was their their space and this whole grid map of human genealogy uh, as we figured out how all of these pieces fit together and kind of what you're talking about there reminds me of of this project that that you you fit into this uh genealogical uh geography so to speak and in a way and you can use that as the uh, kind of the 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 peg the the storing house for all of the information about yourself, uh, all mm -hmm. of the experiences you've had, and all the things you own and have done, and uh, but then then you run into all the privacy issues surrounding that as well. Right. I wanted to ask about that. Only if you ask, think yeah. they're issues. So again, this part of the the baseline assumption here is that privacy withers. Right. Or maybe it becomes some other thing and it's a paid privilege privacy access to use the privacy browser. But anybody you're paying to have access for the privilege of privacy is no longer genuine privacy. Right. <laughs> what are the arguments, yeah. what are the arguments for it not being a problem? I mean, the potential failure modes just abound in. My oh, mind. yeah. Oh, and I don't think this, you know, I think 30% would be an extremely uh, bullish case of, of how much of this is going to uh, is going to come true. But it's, again, it's hard to know, right? Because it it's one of these things that, you know, stuff doesn't get adopted until it really gets fucking adopted. And where is that, what is that break point going to look like? I the, the thing that I can say that convinced me to leap into the crypto industry, so I saw a figure in a Masari report that was uh, pulled from uh, a different report from the consultancy Edelman that came out before COVID, just before COVID hit. And they interviewed people from all over the world uh, and asked them about their public institutions, banks, governments, churches, museums, hospitals, attorneys, you name it. And on and they asked them to rank these uh, entities on the axes of trustworthiness and effectiveness. <laughs> and there was no, no public institution anywhere that was considered both trustworthy and competent. Wow. Okay. Think about that. And I think to me, that looks like a societal breakpoint that's accelerated by the pandemic. And there's all kinds of Black Death, COVID parallels here. And I think that not too much longer after the Black Death, right? And again, the timelines are a little screwy, and they're definitely much more accelerated in the present moment. You wind up with the successful uptake of the movable type printing press primitive versions of which had existed for a long time, but something, you know, hit a critical mass and poof, there it went. And what it was, was a system for making multiple copies of something everybody could see. And everybody right. could have the master copy live on their own nightstand, rather than trusting that we'd leave it, you know, in the Pope's cathedral, and he'll just tell us what it says. Right. <clears throat> okay, so you're trying to predict the possible use cases for printed information circa 
what do you think democracy is going to look like? What do you think, you know, the industrial revolution when all of this allows scientists to compare notes and invent something like the fucking steam engine, let alone the jet engine, you know, not too much longer after that. Um, I think that it's like, uh, you know, the opposite of going broke. It's like not very much happens until everything that happens all the time up or down, I guess. The inversion of that Hemingway quote. I was thinking about that as you were talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Right. Or it's like, you know, how did everything change exactly the same way? You know, not very much. And then all and it's it's that when that makes all of this so tough in some ways. And I think, too, to kind of go back to this, um, the Toffler piece, um, he's amazing. I would definitely encourage all of your uh, readers to go read Future Shock in 1970. Um, there's a, it's a great 50th anniversary, again, that just came out just before COVID. Um, and he makes some unbelievable prescient observations about what he thinks the fault lines are going to be around technological change accelerating, generational differences, societal attitudes towards alternative lifestyles. It's amazing how much to see how much he got right so early. And then he says, okay, well, bracketing in mind all the usual caveats, I'm going to go ahead and make some predictions on the basis of my analysis. And the two fields that he picks that we're going to dominate the near-term future post-1970 are undersea mining and global weather control. Wow. Just big fat swing and a miss just nothing close to hitting that right. change up you know and it shows you how right you can be at <laughs> closing your eyes and gripping the wall forward rather than imagining into the open darkness still with your eyes closed and saying oh i know where the chair is yeah it's it's an iterative it's a it's an iterative and responsive approach to future yes yes or, or and frame you have adjustments. To, I think be feeling your way along the fault lines that you think are going to be the breakpoints rather than guessing what you think the outcome of that vector collision is going to be. Right. right, right. Because even what vectors are going to collide, let's just even start with that. Right. And I think that there are enough of them that are important enough that don't get at least maybe I'm not following the right people. I'm kind of like new to the industry, but don't get discussed in these kinds of you know, this isn't a, a content marketing cycle. This is like a 10-year cycle. And what is actually going to happen here, right? And I think one of the ones that I've become the most interested in, again, has to do with generational cleavage. I think that's and partly I'm indebted to Toffler there because I think that's one of the things that it's, you're able to see the most objectively and will have the most certain persistence into the future, right? What it's going to mean may change, but, you know, proportions of who is coming of age of what society and what kind of generationally defining events so far, it's, it's not bad. You know, if you're going to project into the future to extrapolate based on certain trends, you know, demography is not a bad, uh, you know, place to be in. And I think that there is a generational break in crypto that doesn't get discussed very much between, you know, the OGs, you see this around around Luna, right? Like a lot of people freaked uh -huh. out and lost their minds. A lot of people were like, Psh, been here before, right? Exactly. Because some of them have been here before and some of them are new. And those that have been here before, a lot of them have a reason for being there that is at odds with the reason for being there a lot of the newbies are there for, right? So this is a fight that is going to be brewing, I think, over the fate of the cryptocurrency ecosystem. The OGs, by and large, to paint with a big brush, are Bitcoiners. They're sort of in it for a revolution of the sovereign individual. They tend, in my rough view of the space, to tilt older white and male. It just is what it is. <clears throat> Conversely, 
a lot of the newbies are in here for reasons that are uh, closer to that Buddha in peace we were discussing earlier, which is a revolution of the communitarian. This is a new way for all of us to own something together and share it and allow the incentives to be shared and the resources to be shared amongst us all. Those impulses to be self-sovereign and to be more tightly community beholden is going to be very difficult to recognize and or excuse me not to recognize to reconcile and what that reconciliation process looks like and means is going to do a lot to determine what shape all of this takes falling out behind it that's a, I find that an interesting claim. Why do you think it would be so hard to reconcile? Because to, to me, and maybe I'm just being naive or, or not giving all the nuances sure. to it seems relatively straightforward. It's I choose to enter into a contract with an, a potentially unbounded number of people via the mechanism of a token or some sort of mm -hmm. you know in, incentive yeah, yeah. system, which is built on top of blockchain. But I can I can withdraw anytime I want to. So I'm both sovereign and, and communally oriented. A hundred percent. And that sounds very much like the kind of thing Wilde would say, right? This is like the best of both worlds. We get the free choice of capitalism. We get the sharing voluntarily, associationally, you know, by uh, by design of, you know, a socialist system. Everybody gets good daycare and everybody can have like slick looking tech jobs and still keep the big salaries. Like, OK, for sure. Like that, that does sound great. I agree with you. If that's how things unfolded, it would be a desirable, positive outcome. But I think that there are all kinds of like, just even to start with like the idea of game theory, right? That I think a lot of the Bitcoiners bring an ethos that this is a one-shot negotiation interacting with a counterpart. And I think a lot of the soulbound tokens people bring a, this is the first of a series of interactions that uh, are, pers are expected to last arbitrarily long. And I think you bring a different way of interacting with the world in behind with you, right? I think this goes back just exactly to the cat pee argument. I think the apartments are going to look like they look like on the blockchain, but some of them will have cat pee in them, right? I think the motivations that are brought in, the invisible, the ineffable, the neon gas that is attending why you're doing something is going to color how you do it, how reliably you do it, what kinds of incentive systems you, you are or are not willing to agree to, right? And a mismatch between those kinds of expectations, I think, uh, yeah, I don't know, it's gonna be interesting. I don't. So my personal take on all of this is that the communitarians are gonna win because they're the ones that are building something that's gonna keep being more and more different from itself as opposed to Bitcoin sort of like is what it is. Like, it's great to be in early on it. I don't know if we're still early, you know, these different, like, oh, it'll be worth 100K of Bitcoin. I mean, maybe, you know, like, again, Toffler thought undersea mining and weather control. It doesn't really matter what I think about, you know, whether or not one asset is going to hit some number or not. But I think that it's, at least for me, hard to imagine that smart contracts was a wrong turn and that everything else that gets built on top of that is going to get built on top of that. And that's about how do we bind each other together with an ever more precisely calibrated incentive alignment you know, plan. And I think not everybody is going to be a want to be a part of a honeybee setup. And I think who does and doesn't want that and who's allowed to participate in society in those ways or not is going to be something people fight over with a lot of intensity and stakes and feelings. So you, you see the basic fault line, to continue that analogy, as being mm -hmm. between the communitarians and the old school types that are more interested in the sovereign individual. And yes. ultimately, you think that the use cases for the more communitarian approach will win out. Uh, yes. What, what's the, I guess, evidence for that so far? Because I'm not 
properly a Bitcoin maxi. I'm very interested in smart contracts and I'm very interested in tokenomics. Mm -hmm. But so far, I, I don't know that anybody's really gotten anything off the ground. And so I'm just curious as to you know, what, what initial signs you see pointing in that direction. For sure. I mean, and I think um, I'm trying to think of how I want to answer this question. I think it's still too early to tell, right? I think that just as you were talking a minute ago about NFTs and property, right? Oh, just imagine, you know, the resolution of the pain point around a closing that takes a month, collapsing down to 45 minutes. Whether or not it's feasible, it's a different thing, but just the value to be created for doing that and doing things like that multiplied by every field in which there's some intermediary that takes too long to do the damn thing, right? Again, that's the same kind of value prop of like uh, Uber of money, you know, like you don't need to be a minister monopoly anymore to have a black car show up at your house. You need a phone and a button and it'll show up at your house, right? right. <clears throat> if DeFi can do to money what Uber did to transportation, I, the world will be better off to some extent or another, and it'll probably unrich some people more unfairly than others. Probably a lot of people will go broke. The involvement of retail trading and all of this is something I have very complicated ethical feelings about that I'm still sort of you know working out for myself. Um, I think everybody's bought, very few people were pressured, but for one reason or another, into doing Bitcoin or doing Ethereum or doing whatever, right? So I think your voluntary association piece of this is, is, is certainly still on point for that. It's too early to tell, right? All of these things are theoretically possible, but they don't necessarily feel like they're super theoretically far away. One of the most interesting conversations I had uh, with somebody actually, you know, for a journal article was a, a CEO of a company that's doing like real spatial kind of stuff um, called XYO Labs, super cool company. And they're building what they described to me as a reality oracle, right? Like, I think part of why I love working in this field is like, you know, Microsoft comes out with something. It's like the new Surface Pro X, right? Here in crypto, you come out with it and it's like the God app. Right? That's kind of, it's cooler. It's like kind of sexy. I don't know. It's more interesting. Like, reality Oracle um, certainly sounds a lot cooler. And Tom, Thomas, has got a, Oracle. Thomas has got this ongoing idea that he keeps playing with uh, a search engine for the physical world where you could you mm. could search for different textures, you could search for different smells, you could search for mm. different like temperature gradients, this this sort of thing. It, it's come up in a couple of different podcasts and I could see the two interfacing in a really interesting way. This could be the technology that would allow a thing like that to exist. Exactly. Right. And uh, by the way, uh, there's a guy at Harvard, I think I forget, but he's like a big like digitizing smell. Like, I, you know, he's much, much more important and famous than I am. But if you could get him for your podcast, it would be, I'm sure, a, uh, an interesting person to talk to. Digitizing enjoy. smell. Uh, yeah. 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 There's a restaurant. Oh, shit. It was my one of my favorite places in Boston that he used to run that closed. And I'm sure I'm sure you could Google him with some amount of looking. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and if you need help, with we can talk uh, offline. But to go back to the reality oracle piece, I had heard the word Oracle before in crypto. And I just kind of assumed I knew what it meant because it's like a word. It's like something that predicts the future. Turns out that's not actually what it means. It's a window between on-chain and off-chain, whatever direction it may be pointed. In one of those little like dumb column charts, like Web 2, Web 3, an Oracle is like an API. It's more decentralized. The data is theoretically coming from multiple nodes that will have to like, cross-check each other. But in upshot, what it does is take information that isn't on chain and bring it as a feed on chain, right? So you can imagine something like the crypto API of the weather. You could embed smart contracts with something or other futures, derivatives, et cetera, based on actual weather, right? Okay, cool. It's a compound meteorological and financial instrument. It's kind of interesting. Now imagine you do something that's like your search engine of the actual world, right? It's a mashup of 
tile for like item tagging ways because it's made out of people going places with a coin and wherever and yeah google maps ways tile like foursquare kind of also at the same time and it's got a token system that pays people to move around and go places and then that data is worth something they keep a percentage of worth and the company keeps a percentage for building the data that built the thing we all own it ourselves together etc cetera, etc cetera. but you can just imagine like a a extrapolate a successful positive use case around this we talked about like resolving friction from intermediaries imagine you want to send cement somewhere right you could imagine money uploaded to put into a digital escrow account some little crypto tracker activator thing goes on the thing the cement goes on site automatically payment gets made everybody can see what everybody is doing everybody put their keys in to permit the system to thing the system did its thing everybody took their keys back out and they walked away and went away together how could that transform like the human global infrastructure of like you know global supply chain probably some i don't quite know enough about the workings of ports to tell you exactly how much when and why and where the real unlock's going to be if i did if i knew that i would just be out there building that company um but i think you can see that's probably there's gonna be some hot action whoever figures out that absolutely yeah so no proof yet but you know I, so I'm a graduate of the University of Chicago, and one of the proud sayings of the University of Chicago is, uh, sure, it works in practice, but what about in theory? <laughs> right. No, yeah. I, I like that approach. I like that approach. I, I don't That's know that you need, you don't need a whole lot in the way of prognostication in order to say that if yeah. you can dramatically reduce the friction involved in certain kinds of processes, that will speed a lot of things up and, and allow for a lot of innovation to blossom. That's essentially, I would argue what the fundamental innovation and use of money was in the first place. I mean, we don't have to uh -huh. rehash the, you know, economics 101, chapters one through five that we all are, are familiar with, but it solved the coincidence of wants. It allowed for greater degrees of specialization and the rest, as yeah. they say, is history. And, and if you could yep. further that yep. in some way, another turn of the screw, it, it mm -hmm. may, maybe wouldn't be as innovative or, or as um, uh, progress inducing as, as the invention of money, but it could maybe be in that same order of magnitude. Or at least an, another like role of the bowling ball, you know, like, okay, fine. This isn't <laughs> money. It's not writing. Right. But like email. Okay. Which had a bigger impact on the history of the world, writing or email, probably writing, but like, right. again, they're in conversation with one another, yeah. you know? And I also think too, people overestimate how much change they actually want to see in their own lifetimes. I was talking to a, a close friend of mine, a very sensitive uh, guy, he's an artist, very, very knowledgeable, very uh, apprised of, of blockchain issues. And I think I would, um, so I know I'm not supposed to talk about politics, but I can, I think I can talk about politics without practicing it. Um, and I think, so I would roughly characterize my friend's political orientation as like the smartest Bernie Sanders voter you ever met. Um, not my attitudes, but attitudes, consistent attitudes with more math than I'm able to do and follow and question certainly, right? And certain set of uh, beliefs about uh, how society ought to behave, uh, many of which I have sympathy for and not every one of which I share personally. Okay, fine, you know? And he was sort of trying to have me hold crypto to task for the fact that it was both innovation dusting sprinkled on the old power order and populated by crazy people who want crazy unrealizable things and therefore the system is dangerous. And I said, okay, wait a minute. It's changing too fast, it's changing too slow and it's changing too fast, right? 
and are, we're using right. since 2008, you know, the beginning of the ecosystem as the benchmark, right? Like, you know, this is like all wrong. Look at, you know, one of my favorite things to encourage, you know, my art history students to do, but the, the analogy holds here isn't very well, is go look at some paintings by Giotto. Giotto is sort of the first artist to paint in perspective. That is hugely important, and he's not that great at it. He's just not. One of the beginning lessons of like art history, you know, 102 or whatever, is like you look at a Giotto and you look at another artist from later in the Renaissance and be like, where did they learn? You know, oh, okay, cool. We got the shadows, right? Oh, the perspective actually aligns to the single point. Oh, the light is coming from one consistent zone. You know, the objects are actually sitting on the table. Okay, fine. People figured all that shit out. But still, when you look at the, the people are in love with that version one of the system because they think, oh, it's all inchoate in here, right? If we just look at the Big Bang with a big enough microscope, we'll see every event that will happen all the way after it. It may be, but at what level of granular detail, right? Like you can see the event, you kind of get an idea maybe of what Michelangelo will be able to do hundred and something years later, right? But not really, right? It's not really the same thing. Oh, look at that fucking Michelangelo paint, right? And I think there's a lot of that same logic that applies here where it's like, oh, look at what it promises itself it'll be able to do. Why hasn't it yet done it already? Like shit, this was science fiction five minutes before it became theoretically possible. And we're telling you it's theoretically possible and we feel it's direction of the world going moving. You're like, well, why isn't it here yet? Because it didn't exist five minutes ago, you know? And how much change do you actually want? Do you, are, do you have enough confidence that the Uber, Airbnb, Truro car sharing service you're going to use to replace the fire department, the IRS, the public school system, the police, and the highway safety patrol agency at the same time is going to work. So one of one of the things I one of the things I used to describe how the internet has changed our lives is that it's created more awareness. And as mm. as we as we see this new level of awareness, we have more visibility into the things that we're doing. So uh, as an example, within the crypto world, we can see how we can enter uh, moments of payments here and there in our lives that weren't visible in the past because we suddenly have much more awareness about how all of these things are working real time as opposed to hearing about them two weeks later. Um, yes. And, and so that, that change changes the kind of the game plan a lot a hundred percent so there's a uh fantastic for those of your readers who are interested in reading uh academic humanities research in my you know kind of field of origin is a great uh chapter by a, a brilliant scholar named bruno latour called drawing things together and it is a you know 60 page exegesis about how the renaissance gives birth to the scientific revolution and in essence what he argues is that what you know, the printing press, engraving, ideas circulating that are coming back in from the Arab world to Renaissance Italy, all of these different things made it possible for researchers to compare their observations with other researchers. But that actually is the needle moving factor when you can say, huh, you know, the star is nine degrees, not where somebody else said it ought to be. Why is that? Oh, because there's like a curvature, it turns out. That's like interesting, right? All of the uh, consequences that unfold, unfold from being able to cross-compare someone else's view of reality with your own against a stable copy. And if now the first time is and in real time, an NFT is some kind of guarantor of stable copy that we actually are looking at the same thing, you know, through 
other ends of the metaverse telescope, right? Okay, right? What, is the, what are the use cases for comparing? How do you even begin to answer a question like that? <laughs> yeah, I, I like that as a lens. It's, it's often not the thing, like, like the genesis of these major upheavals is often not what you would pinpoint it. It's often something that in hindsight looks fairly trivial or well, may, maybe in foresight looked fairly trivial. It's just, well, yeah. we now have copies and, and I can see that you said this thing and, and it turns out to be uh -huh. wrong because I'm looking right at it. Yeah. And you, you wouldn't yeah. think that would be such an enormous uh, achievement or an enormous source of change. What you're describing, is the origin of public discourse. It becomes possible to hold a collective opinion about something, right? When you all have read the newspaper, as opposed to you're just hearing what the town crier tells you right. the king says is true, that's what's true, right? But when you can compare notes, all of a sudden you can talk to each other about what the notes say, right? right. And is Twitter helping us do that? Is it harming us because we can do it at such you know low transaction costs? Like, I don't know. And I don't know that an opinion about that matters in any kind of, like real-time way, I think the consequences of this are the interesting thing, and they are almost so fantastical, they're hard to talk about, but what their probability is and what their time frame is, is also sort of hard to say with any kind of real consistent belief. I don't know. I, don't know. I think it's, a, it's an interesting time to be in the industry, certainly. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion. We've covered um, covered everything uh, yeah. from from weird approach factors for certain. Um, yeah, and I, now how how much has the um, uh, kind of the uh, the dismal outlook of the crypto world affected you um, as as things kind of crashed last week and. Uh, mm. I think in terms of how it's impacted my work and my view of the industry, I think that um, there's another, uh, I'll, I'll tease a topic from the second uh, issue that I don't know that I'm gonna be able, well, excuse me, I know I'm gonna be able to do it, I just don't know if I'm gonna be able to do it to the maximalist version of this. So uh, there is a uh, famous, uh, crypto renaissance historian who can go unnamed who uh i am cautiously hopeful will be co-writing the piece that i'm describing with you but if he doesn't turn up to write it i'm going to write it myself uh and it's a uh written response to a fantastic book that came out maybe two three years ago uh that I can uh, post a link in the checks. The, the title of it's escaping me, and I don't want to send people in an Amazon rabbit hole. Uh, that looks at uh, the Jamestown colony in Virginia for different kinds of seed kernels of what's going to turn into American democracy, and pays a ton of very compelling, interesting attention to the uh, interpenetration of ideas that were coming from basically lower class whites who were on the boats over there and had kind of, in some ways, fallen out the bottom of their own social order by being sent over on the early colonies. It was like, that was a good chance that something good was going to happen by doing something as dangerous and insane as that. The native peoples who they found themselves in uh, a lot of direct uh, contact with, especially at early moments on a more equal footing uh, that is commonly understood, looking at the thing in the rearview mirror, and runaway slaves who had gotten themselves mixed up in all of this completely against their will and had managed to break free and were running around to a certain extent with the natives, but also bringing other kinds of ideas and patterns. It's a long, very deep, very interesting book, right? So where does this relate to crypto? <clears throat> the book does an excellent job at tracking how innovations in Britain, namely around the idea of the joint stock company, 
set up the ground for a revolution they're not going to be prepared politically, culturally, attitudinally to see through the consequences of. So they uh, possessed something similar to how what we would understand is venture capitalism, right? So if you're a duke, you can commission a thing, right? I'm going to commission a voyage. Let's see what the fuck is over there, right? But the idea of commissioning something that was going to go and come back is very different than something that's going to go and stay. You almost need a whole bunch of co-owners of something like that where it's a one-way ticket. You know, the people getting on a one-way ticket are just not going to do a good job if you absolutely force them to right? They have to decide to be there, right? So this is actually a funny, interesting coincidence where the word adventure comes from. So the commoners who would otherwise have zero access to any kind of speculative capital can adventure their bodies, just as the dukes are venturing their treasure. Sweat equity. This is a concept that gets born, right? And then a whole bunch of other things happen. They come into contact with new sort of social organizational patterns that are more consensus-driven than bottom-up. And they say, hey, wait the fuck. We're over here risking our lives for all of this stuff. People that are really getting rich over this are, you know, back in England, and they're making decisions that are bad for everybody because they're not close enough to the situation. The alignment incentives between owners and managers is all fucking wrong here. We ought to be able to pick who's in charge. And then, you know, the American Revolution from there, right? Very interesting, very uh, compelling kind of an argument. And one of the injustices that the author does a good, it's always tough trying to talk about injustices in history, right? But I'll bring the 21st century um, moral view of the situation to bear on a time period that may doesn't, or does, doesn't apply to, but I think clarify for this conversation. There is a power asymmetry between the dukes and the commoners, right? The commoners have no other choice. You can die miserable and broke on this farm where your kids are sick and whatever, or take your chance and like, you know, make a man of yourself in the new world kind of thing. It's only one of those has upside. Okay, fine. But the downside, again, is not shared, where the retail trader gets completely wiped the fuck out. And the institutionals, maybe you take one on the nose, but you've got the the treasure reserve to to hodl, you know, into perpetuity. I think they're is a conversation around the enthusiasm for retail adoption and the use of retail traders' money that oftentimes turns into exit opportunities of unknown speculative capability and staying power given to those in some ways who are least prepared to bear them. And I think there is a moral calculus there that needs to be reckoned with more explicitly in the field than is currently being. I, I've got to jump. Uh, we'll, we'll cut this little bit out. I, I've got to call yep. the CEO. But you guys, you guys can finish up without me. This is this has been great. I'll uh, I'll email you. I've got some thoughts. Uh, Beautiful. I'm Trent. I'm sorry we're going to miss you for this last section because we're talking about kids stuff. But <laughs> let's do uh, you know at least uh, one more thing that I would love to jam with. All right. Let's. Uh, uh... This has been a, a fascinating discussion about uh, approaching lots of these topics from multiple different angles. What what is it that gives you hope in the industry? What is it that um, uh, that you, you can clearly see on the horizon that this is taking us towards something better mm. than what we have right now? It's interesting. Uh, it's like you ask two questions at the same time, right? It's like, what gives you hope and what evidence do you have? It's like faith and demonstration <laughs> are not necessarily the same thing. Um, I think that 
taking crypto out of the equation, there are issues that are clearly fundamental like problems in our world, right? To me, absolute top of the top is climate. We haven't talked really about Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining, you know, ways to transition to greener, you know, staking mechanisms, all these different things. Um, FAP is coming out about that. It's something I, you know, think it's always important to sort of call out as a, as a, as a big near-term solve the industry needs to again come to terms with. Um, I think that uh, bracketing aside Bitcoin, which actually doesn't put out nearly as much carbon dioxide as you would imagine. I found a comparable uh, that put it, so the standard quoted you know, amount is around 40, uh, 40 or 50 megatons of carbon dioxide, which sounds like a lot, it's a lot. Um, I found a study on uh, golf courses. Instead of professionally maintained you know, mega scale golf course, puts out about two megatons of carbon dioxide per year. So it turns out there's like two dozen PGA golf courses. And it seems to my scanning of the literature that Bitcoin emits as much carbon dioxide as the PGA. And one of them is not the linchpin of a new global, more inclusive financial order. One of them is a golf <laughs> Right? Okay. So <clears throat> there are issues around e-waste that are not fully attended to this. This is like not at all to, to dismiss the environmental problems, but simply to note that problems are being grappled with, problems are maybe not a proportion as they're commonly understood, and problems need to be addressed in order for the industry to move forward in its best way possible. But given that those kind of things can be you know, solved within Bitcoin, they haven't been solved in the planet, right? Let's say you solve Bitcoin for the environment. Have you solved shipping for the environment? Have you solved like the rising global middle class for the environment? I don't think so. And I think that it's become increasingly hard for me, hard, for me to imagine solutions to these big societal problems in which crypto is not a part of addressing them, right? I think the idea of a uh, registration system for carbon credits so that everybody can see where these things are going, who paid for how much of them, and et cetera, et cetera, put as much of this on the blockchain with real-time public visibility as possible, that's probably good for the public good just as a, as a new bit of infrastructure. And one of the things that I like about that is it's not trying to put the fire department out of business, right? The fire department works just fine. We don't need a DAO-based fire department. We just have the fire department, right? But a DAO-based global climate DAO that supervised carbon emissions might do a better job than the UN. I mean, they might not, but they might, right? And it seems like, okay, here, that's upside. I might kind of want to try to buy in, right? Another kind of similar one that is maybe less obvious, but I've, I've just become more interested in it, is around the idea of pseudonymous identity. So I um, am advising a startup, I helped a friend found, now like step back from day-to-day -day operations, and we gotta hire people, right? He, okay, so just as a little backdrop on the team, brilliant team, absolutely love them, everybody I think I just would vouch for as a human in every best way possible. I am a white guy, my co-founder is Chinese, he brought on our two CTOs who are Chinese. We're bringing on one other white guy that I happen to be friends with. And that's what our team is. And we thought, oh, that's not great. <laughs> so we needed to hire. Right? We, we knew we needed to hire diversity. And we were cultivating it and reaching out to people we thought we know would have diverse contacts. All of these are doing everything we could to try to not be loud allies, but just allies that just showed up and did the fucking work. you know. And it became interesting to me when we got resumes with a crypto punk on the top and an ether address on the top. I thought, is this a, how do I know? How do I know if this, I can do good by hiring a minority person here? And I thought, well, wait a minute. 
turn that problem around now. What if I'm just a hiring manager and now I can't see, is this person a woman? Is this person old? Is this person a certain race or not? All I get is an ether scan and a profile pic and maybe some blockchainified LinkedIn work history or something <laughs> like that. Huh, yeah. Right? You know, like, okay, is Bitcoin, is crypto, is Web3 going to solve discrimination? No, probably not. Is anything going to solve discrimination? No, probably not at a fundamental human level, right? Uh, and yet, what has non-blockchain managed to do about this? Okay, we've got all these like diversity and equity and inclusion committees, which are doing good work and are needed and part of why this is going to have the traction that it needs, right? But I am friends with many people that work in that industry. I follow a lot of them on LinkedIn. They're perpetually voicing frustration with their own inability to force companies to adhere to the publicly stated goals they worked hard with them to help them craft right okay i think the blockchain looks like a means of doing that it looks like a means of creating public accountability where heretofore there'd been trust and invisibility rhetoric right okay sure did bitcoin solve discrimination no did it introduce a new potentially useful tool that is going to take us to an extent we've never been able to take until now Possibly, that's kind of why I work in the field, you know? Yeah, that's that's actually a great answer because it gives us new tool sets to see the future in an entirely different way. Yep. Well, well, Michael, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion here. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, let us get a glimpse of uh, inside inside your mind, which uh, sure. is going like a thousand miles an hour all the time. And uh, <laughs> so my wife tells me, <laughs> I, I find this absolutely fascinating. So thank you for coming on our show. And I, I really appreciate uh, you take, taking this time today to be with us. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.